Welcome everyone to this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm seated here with the Roly Birkin of rock journalism, <laughs> Mr. Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. Last week when we taped this, uh, we were slightly too late, sadly, to record the passing of the great Pete Shelley. So we just want to give him some props now. We did run a free audio interview with Pete last week, and I hope some of you were able to hear that. Buzzcocks, Mark. I, I was very, very fond of the Buzzcocks. Um, they were kind of called a punk band. They were one of the first punk bands in comes in this country. But there's something very unpunkish about them. Um, for a start, they were really pretty songs, and really pretty songs. And they delivered them. I mean, he sang in this very nicely sort of slightly offhand manner. There's no shouting at the audience. There's no barking. It, it, it lacked all the, the punk gestures. Yes. And, of course, the second thing is they virtually invented DIY. I mean, critical to the, the growth of the independent record movement. Um, Spiral Scratch EP, doing it themselves. They were the very first people to do that. Very, very important moment. And I lost my copy. I had it. It's gone. Oh, yes. And, of course, that was before Howard DeVoto left yeah. to form magazine. The, 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 the absolutely impossibly tedious magazine. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, yeah, we're, no, we're, I think we're all very fond of Pete Shelley. Yeah. Very sad. You know, he's obviously uh, he was a complicated guy. He was struggled with sexuality, mm. all kinds of stuff. Mm. And, again, one of the things songs contained, they contained this humanity in the way in which he described personal politics, sexuality and so on and yeah. so forth. Um, yeah. And he had settled down with his partner in Estonia. He, he seemed a pretty happy guy. Mm. Heart attack. Yeah. Kind of quintessentially provincial English voice, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Pop punk original. Um, he also put on the, free, the Lesser Free Trade Hall show that the Pistols played in Manchester, which was a very critical part of spreading London punk message. And... All the people who went to that show went on to form bands, or so it appears. Mm. Mm. Yeah, important guy. So, farewell, Pete Shelley. Um, And we're now going to move on to everything that's new on Rock's Back Pages this week, uh, starting with the week's audio interview, which is from February 1978, um, and it's with Bill Nelson of Bebop Deluxe. Tell us about the opening segment yeah it's, it's it's the classic starting bands at school story uh the delightfully named cosmonauts um and uh it's in a, in a way it's the story of every musician who's ever existed it's it's discovering the guitar forming a band at school playing kind of the occasional youth club thing and it's just just a sweet little story of that sort When I first started, I was at uh, secondary school, a place called Ings Road Secondary Modern School, and um, I'd been playing an acoustic guitar purely accidentally, one that my father had bought me after seeing me mess about with my brother's toy one. And uh, I met a friend at school called Ian Parkin, who, strangely enough, ended up in the original lineup of Bebop. He was at the same, in the same class and everything, and we were about the same level of competency on guitar. And we put a little band together, him and I, and uh, a friend who had drums made from biscuit tins with brown paper stretched over them. And I think we had two girl singers and somebody else uh, 
singing vocals and we called ourselves uh, the Cosmonauts <laughs> at the time and we had little cards printed that said the Cosmonauts rhythm and beat vocal group or something like this available for bookings <laughs> did you uh, get money? no not really <laughs> we did a couple of youth clubs and we were paid in bottles of pop and ice cream I think So that was Bill Nelson talking about his very earliest musical days in the uh, Cosmonauts, <laughs> playing for Soda Pop. I love it. I mean, I, he comes across really well in this, in yeah. this interview. Bebop Deluxe are still going for another year well, or so. Well, no, no, this, this is actually kind of the really interesting thing, is he's talking very positively about the band and about how to change direction. They'd broken up within about six months. Of this six interview. months, was it? Uh, the, the Drastic Plastic was their last album, which was their attempt to deal with punk, to all intents and purposes. You know, a much more stripped down, much more, much simpler sound. Because, in a sense, uh, um, Bebop Ducks were sort of like a amalgam of Queen and uh, yeah, glam and glam and prog. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, they were one of the bands which were really hit by punk. I mean, there's a whole raft of mm. bands suddenly found it really difficult to get gigs, to tour, and so on and so forth. 78 saw an enormous winnowing of the sort of, let's say, the second division university slash small hall sort of level bands, of which they were sort of pretty much part of. So it's curious, you know, this is a man talking enormously optimistic about, optimistically about the future of his band, and within months they, they, they were gone. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bebop Deluxe... By the way, the reason we're talking about Bebop Deluxe and Bill Nelson right now is that he turns 70 next week, so we, should, we thought we would mark the occasion. Um, Happy birthday, I, Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have many of their records. I did buy the single Made in Heaven mm-hmm. in 1975. That seemed to me a wonderfully different kind of record at that point. I mean, 1975 being in many ways such a sort of dreary and bloated year, and Bebop were sort of like somewhere between kind of glam and punk. You know, that, <laughs> that song, I, I think, is, is terrific, um, from the Future Armour album, produced by uh, Roy Thomas Baker, yep. of course, who'd produced Queen. I think it was EMI slash Harvest's That's idea right. to bring yeah. Roy Thomas Baker yeah. in. And in the audio, Bill says uh, he didn't particularly enjoy working with no, him. We'll, I will probably play that clip later, but it, it is very, very amusing. The other thing is, I mean, he was very much a kind of local Wakefield boy, and forming a band with sort of essentially local musicians who weren't really up to playing the sort of stuff that, that he wanted to do. And having the record company initially wanted him to sign him as a solo artist, and saying, I want my band with me. But then he effectively sat... All, virtually all of the band within, within, within a space of about a year and had replaced them. You know, so, so it, it's curious. He, he does say he's, he sounds like he's got a sort of curious sort of self-doubt running through him, and I think he felt his provincialism very, very hard. Um, and actually, I, I think he found the music business difficult. Mm. Uh, you know, I think he felt like a bit of, like a fish out of water there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's an interesting character. He didn't sort of fit into any real category, no. did he? I mean, they had... They sort of tasted a little bit of commercial success yep. with ships in the night. They were on Top of the Pops, they were on the old Grey Whistle test, but, you know, they, they weren't glam, yeah. they weren't prog, they were somewhere in between. They were certainly different from all the 
uh, kind of long-haired denim bands of yeah, the era. Uh, it's worth pointing out that he went to art school, and he, he, as a lot of English musicians have, and he brought to the process some sort of like half-formed ideas he'd gather while at art school, and so the way in which he'd manipulate image and so on and so forth. He started off looking a bit like a Bowie clone, and then cut his hair off and started wearing suits and so on and so forth. He talks in the interview about going to America and being on bills like Blue Oyster Cult and Ted Nugent. The audience has been totally confused by the appearance of, yes. of the band, but then they would launch into this extraordinarily complex and high-energy sort of you know, instrumental-based sort of music. And he talks about blowing Ted Nugent off the stage. Which the is, idea uh, of them supporting Ted Nugent is, is brilliant. But they were slightly ahead of the curve, weren't they? He talks about uh, the, the decision they made to wear suits yep. and look like kind of bank clerks yep. at a time when, when... I mean, that was really ahead of... That was like almost 80s yes. in Embraer, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think he was a really talented guy. I mean, interesting songs, interesting kind of space-age themes and a lot of kind of yeah. 70s tropes. I, I have to admit, I'm not sure I consciously listened to them mm. once in my entire life. They, 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 they kind of just so weren't what I was interested in. But it's a, it's a, it is a very interesting interview, actually. It's, it's well worth listening to. It really is. And we're going to turn our attention to the free offerings on the RBP homepage, starting with something very different from Bebop Deluxe, which is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wu-Tang Clan. The reason I chose this as the main feature for this week is that there's a very interesting book just came out published by Granter of all companies about the Wu-Tang Clan by a guy called Will Aishon, who went to Balliol College, Oxford. Um, and, uh, <laughs> That's a natural fit, isn't it? <laughs> it's, a, it's an unusual take, not just on Wu-Tang, but on hip-hop, the the sort of tributaries that fed yep. into hip-hop. I'm not sitting here pretending I've read it cover to cover, but I've dipped into it. It's, it's very, you know, it's very uh, literate. It's very smart and, and, and interesting. And it sort of begs the question in a way, you know, why have Wu-Tang got this um, special reputation in the hip-hop sort of firmament? Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, sonically, they were fabulous. I mean, they were, they were doing stuff just purely with sound, which is really something else. Secondly, they were above and outside of the then-current East Coast, West Coast beef stuff. They, they were nothing to do with gangster as such, even though there were elements of gangsterism about some of their approach. They also kind of more or less invented the collective, in this country, So Solid Crew, an example of some people who looked at Wu-Tang thought that that's how you do it, you know. So th there was no single focus on an, on an individual. I mean, Giza, Riza, mm. and mm. so on. Mm. You know, there are people who sort of do stand, mm. stand out. But, mm. but I, I, I think this thing about being above the fray of the East Coast, West Coast stuff happening in precisely that time, this is, not, you know, 93, mm. 94, 95 mm. stuff, mm. allowed people to accept them without it carrying any sort of other baggage yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you talk about the, the collective, the ensemble. I mean, there were nine main guys, but even outside of that, yeah. there were all kinds yeah. of other hangers-on and, and contributors. They were, from, they were from Staten Island. Mm. Staten Island is a part of New York, but it isn't. So, mm. again, I think, I think that gave them sort of slightly... Some distance. Uh, and their fascination with the sort of... Um, 
uh, kind of comic slash kung fu, kung fu culture, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I love them, you know, sonically, yeah. it's really where it got me, you know, RZA being the main guy. Yeah. One of the three pieces that we're featuring is is the excellent R.J. Smith interviewing them for Spin in 1997. And he makes the point that RZA really is the boss, you know, there's a very yes. chaotic bunch of guys, yeah. but when he steps in... Yeah. And Bart's orders, yeah. they fall into line. But equally, when he steps out, which he does do from time to time, the whole thing tends to sort of slightly come, unra- come unraveled, yeah. But he's so, so, I mean, you know, I don't think I'd ever heard anything like Wu-Tang, uh, particularly, um, I mean, I loved the first album, but yeah. um, there's, there's these really interesting kind of Southern Soul samples yeah. that he uses later yeah. on, you know, almost like, his sensibility is almost lo-fi. Yeah. It really gets away from the kind of very big, brash, I'm not going to say slick, but, you know, hip-hop had never sounded quite like this before. It's all kind of fragmented it, and broken it, and weird it, it and is dissonant. I, I mean, my only criticism, really, of their first two or three albums is they're too long. They, they, they weren't yeah. very good at editing themselves. No. But... You know, they're, they're sensational to listen to. E- even if you yeah. don't really listen to the words. I'm not a great word person. You know, I can songs can go past and I'll, I'll know, like, one line from mm. them. And the same with, with raps and hip-hop. Mm. But, but just, as you say, his production, his ability to assemble different things from different sources mm. and to create an extraordinary atmospheric sort of soundscape yes. for them to work on. Always quite... Creepy and menacing yep. in many ways, but sometimes very beautiful, yep. very moving. The, the sense of menace around uh, Wu Tang is is conveyed in some of these pieces. The very first piece is Angus Beatty, one of the best British writers yep. on hip hop, encountering them in London in 1994. Yep. So <clears throat> about well, I don't know a few months after the release of of, of Enter the, the 36 Chambers, yep. and there's already just this sort of chaos and anger yep. and, and and imminent sort of violence in oh. the air. We ran a couple of weeks ago uh, Simon Price live review from that when they were over on that particular mm. tour, and he actually interviewed them. We can't, I haven't found the interview. I asked Simon, mm. and he, he, um, he was basically sort of almost kind of held prisoner on a tour bus and mm. given a really hard time by them. Mm. It was, mm. a, a, you know, in this kind of cloud of weed smoke and you know, paranoia. It was some experience. I mean, not to be too nationalistic about it, but actually the English pop press were very early on, were, were fans of Wu-Tang in a way that most of the American press, really, the white American music press didn't get. And they came over here very early. I mean, this is, this, you know, 94, 95. It's 94, yeah. You know, of course, the... the the most extreme example of, shall we say, sort of chaos and, and, and violence yeah. <laughs> in the Wu-Tang story is, is, is this, the sad story of Old Dirty. Yeah. So the, the last of the three pieces in this feature is William Shaw visiting Old Dirty Bastard in the Clinton Correctional facility up near the Canadian border in upstate yep. New York. And just what a what a sad portrait yes. this is. This is two thousand two, he died two years later. And fascinating, endearing, you know, rather charming, but absolutely insane guy. Yep. You know, yep. there's an amazing track of his on one of his solo albums called I Can't Wait, which I think is one of the, the great hip hop tracks, you know, and I'm not making, you know, huge claims for the rest of his solo ever, but there are amazing things he did. And obviously he started to fade 
weirded out of yeah. the Wu Tang yeah. picture because I mean, it's just I, he hopeless. probably was clinically insane. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, and, I think he probably was. Uh, uh, and you know, being part of the posse supported him up to a point, but he's going to only go yeah. so far. The week's uh, featured writer in the almost famous section is Mr. Tim Cooper, who recently came aboard the Roxback Pages Express, and uh, three pieces from the last almost 20 years, actually, including an interview with none other than David Bowie in New York in 2002, talking about what a kind of clean living, fine, upstanding gentleman David has become. Also (laughs) uh, asking him about the new album, Heathen. You know, I remember, Mark, when we yeah, yeah. when we were the very early days of Rock's Back Pages, I remember this album came out, I think I had to write something about mm-hmm. Bowie for The Independent, and so I really had to listen to that new album, yeah, Heathen, yeah. And, and I, you know what, I came to the conclusion it was a really good record. Yeah. I think it was the first of what became a run of stuff that Bowie did right up to his death, mm. where... He's actually writing about his age and about yes. being an adult and about about being a grown up, uh, uh, and which is very hard, very hard subject for any pop musician or erstwhile pop musician to sort of do. And we listened to that quite a lot in the office, and it was thought, you know, this is really pretty good. His last four albums, I'd say, mm. had a real emotional core to them. I mean, I think they did, and were intensely personal in a way that so much of his output wasn't. There was a deep sort of melancholia yeah. in this record, while yeah. it was still very strong, kind of rhythmically yeah. in arrangement. I mean, it was it was Bowie going back to kind of basics with Tony Visconti. Yes. I think it was almost done in Tony's sort of home studio sure, in Westchester sure. County, and and it had a kind of it, it did feel personal yeah. after his adventures in sort of you drum, know, and, drum bass and bass and, and things like that. Tin machine, exactly. And Bowie kind of doing what he should be doing, writing songs about what it means to be, well, David Bowie, to be human. And um, So the other two pieces by Tim are a piece about uh, Beach House, the the dream pop duo from uh, Baltimore, who I really like. And uh, their album this year, I think, has been one of... I don't think it's gone down particularly well on the Rocks Back Pages office, but I'm rather a fan (laughs) of that sort of dark, blissed-out, moody sort of of sound, and I I really like the new album. You mean you could hear the sound of my teeth grinding across the room? Well, I hear that a lot, obviously, (laughs) but um, perhaps more than usual. But I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of something... I think anyone who's ever loved the likes of sort of... You know, Cocteau Twins, My Bloody Valentine, anyone who's a fan of that kind of oceanic style um, can only can only admire Beach House. The last of the pieces is an interview with Pete Townsend about an orchestral version of Quadrophenia. Oh, God, the, my skin is crawling at the very thought You can it. probably hear Mark's skin crawling, <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll let that speak for our reaction to... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what really to say. Obviously, there are people who just think Townsend can do no wrong. And I mean, I, I did like Quadrophenia. I certainly wouldn't want to sit through an orchestral version of it. Um, <laughs> but that was kind of the last Who that I really liked, you know... Uh, the yeah, moon and Entwistle are just phenomenal on, uh. on Quadrophenia, I think. So, um, so that that's what's free, and that leads us into what isn't free. On <laughs> um, by the way, we would like to thank 
all of you uh, for listening to the Roxback Pages podcasts so far. And uh, we would invite you to be so kind as to uh, review and rate the podcast on iTunes. It would help us. If you've enjoyed it, please say so. If you haven't enjoyed it, just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> That, that that's Mark. That's not me. Uh, Mark now is going to tell us about the some of the highlights. Yeah, yeah. the very earliest piece from uh, it, in itself isn't very interesting. It's a, le- a reader's letter to the Record Mirror from 1962, um, a, headlined "A Sinatra Fan Hits Back" or "The Sinatra Fans Hit Back," and it's written by a certain F. G. Della, secretary of the Frank Sinatra Appreciation Society. Fred Della is one of our writers. Barney, tell us something about Fred Della. Oh, the lovely Fred Della. Uh, universally adored, really, by anyone in the uh, you know music journalism racket. Fred is now in his 80s, still writing for Mojo. Um, you know, I was reading Fred mm. in the 70s. Yeah. He's just such an absolute sweetheart, such a fount of knowledge. Really, there's very little Fred doesn't know about the history of popular music. So when you stumbled on this, I was so delighted. Um, <laughs> and to learn that he was writing in the 50s, I actually sent him an email yeah. a couple of days ago with this letter. And he said he couldn't remember writing it, but it was almost certainly him. <laughs> <laughs> didn't he say he'd written his, he'd, um, written his first thing about Sinatra in the 50s. In the 50s, yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, Fred Fred is just a joy and a, yeah. and, and a delight. And, and I remember talking about Sinatra with Fred back when I was at NME yeah. in, in the 1980s. It, it, it's one of the shames my, my job is I really don't have enough time to read readers' letters because actually a remarkable number of the writers have made their very first appearance in print, you know, writing letters to the music press. Moving on to 68, Jim Payne, who we talked about briefly last week, didn't write nearly enough because this guy could write like an absolute dream. And this is about Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Jim had been hired to play drums, I mean, a pickup band for Hank Ballard visiting Florida in, in the late 60s. And as he says, in Daytona Beach, it rains every afternoon for half an hour or so. When Hank Ballard arrived, it was raining. It's hard to make a dignified entrance in the rain. Arriving in the Cadillac helped. The Midnighters' rather formal travelling dubs helped too. For example, a cranberry bandlon knit shirt, lemon metallic slacks, contrasting see-through socks and patent leathers. The people standing around were impressed, which is great. And, and it's a wonderful, evocative description of a guy who's essentially very much down on his luck. His days of making hit records mm-hmm. are over, where just... Ten years before, he could have gone to Daytona Beach and packed the place out for top dollar. Now he's playing with a pickup band for mm. 400 bucks. Mm. Um, There's great pathos there. It, it, it? It's beautifully written. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if Hank says, you know, I've cut another record and maybe it'll be a hit. And you, you kind of know that he doesn't believe it himself. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's lovely. Great. Next piece from 69, Richard Cromerman, uh, who went on to write for Los Angeles Times and many, many other publications. Uh, he started off on his student newspaper, the UCLA Daily Bruin, and it's about the Who and about their destroying their instruments thing. And it's, it's a kind of marvellously pretentious piece in a way. I mean, he's, he, he's writing to a sort of serious student audience and he's comparing the Who to, like, auto-destructive art and all this sort of stuff, you know. So it's, it's, it's just great fun. It's just... Well, it's not fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's a proper, proper essay. Yeah. But, but it's a very interesting sort of take on stuff. Mm-hmm. 
73, Melody Maker, Michael Watts, the very, very great Michael Watts, reviewing Diana Ross at the Albert Hall. This is a point where Diana Ross, obviously, a few years past being a supreme, a few years ahead of developing a disco diva personality and working with Chic and so on and so forth. And at this point, she was basically become, turned into a sort of supper club entertainer. He says, only it was all a little too icky last week, and those who went to London's Albert Hall, ready, like me, to be idolatrous and fall beneath the spell, may become, like me again, a touch bored when the superstar's infant progeny was born on stage and induced to sing along with Mama, while the latter threw gardinis into the adoring front rows. It confirmed the initial feeling that her appeal is slightly more ornamental and cute than vocal, hmm. and that she has more in common with Shirley Bassey, say, than Billie Holiday. And I think that's a very good description of actually who Diana Ross was at that particular point, and mm. uh, a product of the, the Motown finishing school and so on and so forth. Mm. Another life review from 77, Little Feet at the Free Trade Hall Manchester by mm. Paul Morley. You know, mm. when, mm. when we came across this, Barney and I both roared with laughter because we can't think of a less Little Feet fanished personality than yes. Paul Morley. Or a less Morley-esque act than well, Little Feet. Well, really. indeed. turns out he absolutely loved them, but they weren't very good. And indeed, uh, a friend of mine uh, was working at the Hard Rock Cafe in London when they were on that tour in 77, and he found Lowell George standing in the street in tears saying, you know, I can't go on with this. Mm. Uh, and he left, what, about a year later, mm. I guess? Mm. Um, so, so Paul Morley writes, the feat should be all about exhilaration, shouldn't they? The skill and sophistication of little feet, without any spontaneity, depth or force, is like like, not acceptable, or rather acceptable, which rock and roll should not be. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Paul Moore is a very disappointed guy. He, he talks in the review about going home after the gig and putting on the wonderful bootleg uh, electric leak on through. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, saying, why weren't they like this, mm. you know? Mm. Um, well, this is where I inevitably interject that I was one of the fortunate few who saw Little Feet play the Rainbow in London in 1975 yeah. when it was still a relatively happy camp. Oh, yeah. And they were absolutely sensational. And it's just worth remembering that. Yes, I was surprised that Morley uh, even deigned to review... Let little, alone. little feet at a time when, of course, he was championing punk and yep. everything that was happening in Manchester. There couldn't be a less sort of Howard Devoto-ish band, really. <laughs> little feet. But um, no, little feet. I mean, I was like I was fifteen when I saw Little Feet, and I was sort of just getting into, you know, uh, what I call kind of facial hair music. Um, and, and you know, we, uh, we had a couple of, had a lot yeah, of facial hair. Well, there was a lot of facial hair, and and headliners Doobie Brothers also had a lot of facial, yes. facial hair. We'd seen uh, a couple mates and I'd been to see the Doobie Brothers at the Rainbow the previous year and we sort of loved the captain and me yeah yeah and um but by January 75 Lowell George had effectively made the Doobie Brothers redundant yeah, you know yeah, so yeah. it really was true that, that that we all went there were lots of people there and lots of people who claimed to have been there it's one of those legendary yeah. gigs but I know I know that Elvis Costello was there not that I sort of saw him or would have recognized him as Declan McManus but it, it was a very important gig in terms of like pub, pub yes. rock and yeah. roots rock and everything. And they were absolutely sensational. And I seem to remember people just sort of leaving when the Doobie Brothers the, the, came on. So I, mean, I hear, was, I, I, I'm strange. I, you know, you can mm. 
feel my envy crawling across the room at you. I, I, I'd love to have gone to that show, and I knew a few people who did. I love Little Feast at the time. I mean, I listen to them still. Um, do I love them as much? Pro- probably not. They ha- they did have structural weaknesses as a, yeah. as a band. That and not that many great songs, actually, at the end no. of the day. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's but right. They, but they were great. Yeah. And I know it's a cliche for old balding blokes to talk nostalgically about Little Feet, but they were, my God, they were funky. And Lord George was... An extraordinary and we are, guy, we are old singer. balding blokes. It's, well, it's, I'm more balding than you. Is prep, it? Yeah. Well, uh, can we get a shot? <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. 1978, the wonderful Brian Case, who wrote about jazz for the NME, and I think mm. was a lot of NME readers' gateway drug to jazz. Absolutely. Is, I, I think Brian is absolutely one of my favourite writers. Um, as an interviewer, he's just fantastic, and whether it's Joe Zavanel, you know, Wayne Shorter. Anyway, this is an interview with Dexter Gordon, uh, who at that point was just in the process of moving back to America from his long exile in Scandinavia. And uh, Brian's great. He says, he was wearing a dressing gown, endless shanks, slippers, the kind of carriage and handsome, effortless royal style that 55 and a chapter in the bebop history books can, can confer on a man. Fenya, Dexter's pretty Scandinavian wife, had arrived that morning bearing gifts. Her, her, her. Dexter laughs. The man displaying a pair of plaid, long-legged underpants you could lag an oil rig with. <laughs> I figure she bought these as a joke. They're uh, nice. <laughs> he drapes them over the, the front of his dressing gown and looks down at himself, vastly diverted. Well, you know, when it starts getting like Scandinavia, you've got to put a little extra cover on, huh? You know, it's just, you it's know, it, it's fabulous He writes stuff. like one of the great sort of uh, noir crime yeah. prose stylists, yeah. doesn't he? Knowingly Brian? so. I yeah, mean, you, completely. You know, you know, he, but he does it so well. Does it, does it brilliantly. I saw him maybe two, three years ago, Jeff Barrett of Heavenly, published a, a little book of Brian's writing. Oh, Beautiful you? little capsule portraits yeah. of people like Dexter Gordon. Yeah. And Richard Williams interviewed him at the Heavenly Social yeah. here in London, and it was a delight, and Brian yeah. read some of his stuff, and, and he just—he was—he was absolutely, is was one of the best. Yes, uh, I, I think it was, it was sad that he went to Melody Maker, where I sort of feel that his talents weren't weren't correctly utilised. That there's something about being the jazz man on the punk and post-punk bible that was the enemy at the time, which gave him a sort of freedom to sort of really do interesting stuff. And he was never quite the same writer on the Melody Maker, partly because the Melody Maker had a lot more jazz writers. Well, Richard, who was the editor at, the, at that time, Richard Williams, yeah. the aforementioned, of course, was, was steeped in jazz. Yes, so totally. sort of, you know, recognised... Yeah. Brian's, but, Brian's but, strengths, but, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But there was no one left at NME. There was no one at NME. Richard who, Cook sort of took over. Cook role. did take over, and I knew I knew Richard yeah. well, and um, um, he was like in a, in a sense the new Brian Case, all a very different kind of writer. But but I, I thought that Brian Case had a really good home at the enemy at that indeed. time. Indeed, indeed. Uh, moving to '82, uh, Jeffrey Himes in the Baltimore Sun interviewing Ricky Lee Jones, and it's very interesting because she's really talking about the Tom Waits, Chucky. Ricky Lee triumvirate of mm. hard-drinking right. beatniks in, yes. in Los Angeles, and about her withdrawal from that. She says, uh, we did things that people don't do now or even think about too much, and that made us com- comrades. And that's fun for a while, but then it becomes shallow. And then she goes on to say, it's the people who sit around nearly destroying themselves that other people somehow look to as models, part mm. of this voyeurism. Mm. 
you know, I, I think that you know she's really describing how she could only go so far in that persona, only behave in that way so far before it would just eat her. Well, up. she would have died. Yeah. I think um, by all accounts, you know, you know, Ricky is someone who um, that whole story of her and Tom and Chucky Lee. There's there's a great kind of beat romance quality yes. to that, and um, her Pirates album, her second yeah. album which I really think is one of the greatest records very, ever made. It's, it's really the sort of story of hanging out with yeah. those guys and the sort of, you know, the, the mischief they got up to, um, the fun they had, but also the incredible pain for her of, yeah. of losing weight. And I also just wanted to note that you added a Laura Nero piece. And while she wouldn't talk to me for my Tom Waits book, she did very, very sweetly when I was writing a piece about Nero. And I figured she must have been influenced by Laura Nero. Yeah. She wrote a great screed of stuff about what Nero had meant to her. Yeah. And I incorporated some of that into the piece. And I think of them not, you know, they're sort of in the same orbit. They're both these extraordinary women who take incredible risks with, uh, uh, with their music. And also white women who mind areas yes. of black music yes. in a way that other singer-songwriters really didn't do in the same, certainly in the same sort of way. They, they, they both felt at home in the sort of clothes of sort of R&B. And they certainly did. And I mean, I remember having a Laura Nier album when I was, when I was at, I think I had New York Tenderberry, yeah, yeah. probably the age of like sixteen or something, and it just wasn't ready for it. Yeah. You know, uh, I didn't I didn't hear what was so brilliant about Nero till till some years later. Yeah. I think you sort of have to grow up a bit to engage with that level of emotional intensity, actually. But anyway, so Nero and Jones, I'm yeah. delighted to see both of them in the list. Um, the last one from me is from 96, is uh, The Prodigy. Um, basically, the wonderful Simon Price goes on, on the road with, with The Prodigy. I have to say, they don't, they don't come out of it very nicely, you know. For a start, the, the, Liam Howlett is always kind of, like, going on about how much they, how they won't do Top of the Pops, you know, mm. because it's, like, not our light show and, also, and how they won't be interviewed by Smash Hits. It's as if they're desperate for some sort of notion of credibility. And you know what? We love smash hits here at Rock's Back Pages. You, you, you know, that you could take yourself far too seriously. He says, we don't do any teeny bopper press. I don't want to be associated with bands whose music is in magazines like that. Mm. You know, get a grip, mate. You know, get over yourself. You know? Yeah. And, and one or two other members of the band say some fairly reprehensible... They're a pretty horrible bunch, I think. Yeah, well, really. I, yeah. Let's yeah. be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think for a moment, though, I think they were very exciting and they were genuinely subversive and threatening. And yeah. I, the only time I ever wrote about them was to review The Fat of the Land for Rolling Stone. And I did think it was sort of sonically... Yeah. Tremendously yeah. exciting yeah. music, but it kind of and, the, and, the, the flavour uh, wore off uh, after a while. I have very strong memories of the Firestarter video, which sort of was one of the most jarring things I'd seen. In a sense, there was sort of an element of punk rock about them, which is good. But Simon Price on the road with them. I mean, Simon's a great writer, but I don't think I'd like to hang out with the Prodigy that much, really. No, no, no choice. No. <laughs> No, it'd be like hanging out with Killing Joke, which was the oh my nastiest yeah. experience I ever had as a music writer. <laughs> but we'll move on from that. So that that's that's your lot. That's my lot. I just want to mention a couple of uh, pieces, sort of slightly in 
in kind of connection with the the bebop piece, the Bill Nelson audio. There's a there's an amusing piece about a new prog by Mark Weingarten in the Los Angeles Times. He's essentially talking to the promoter of a festival called Prog West, um, <laughs> uh, Bob Rosenthal, and so he's they're talking about bands like Porcupine Tree, but other groups I'd never even heard of, including these splendidly named. Maudlin of the Well. <laughs> Maudlin of the Well. I mean, I've got to hear them, right? Um, but I, I, I like do you, the. Do piece. you mind if I'm not in the room while you listen? But Bob Rosenthal. So at one point, they start talking about Radiohead. And, um, uh, you know, because there was a lot of talk about Radiohead being new prog, was OK Computer was sort of prog in disguise or some kind of neo Pink Floyd thing. And Rosenthal says, just once, I'd like to see a band like Radiohead come out and say hi we're prog um, which to my knowledge is something tom york has never done but in many ways you know some of the progier elements in radiohead are the things i actually do like about yeah. prog i you know i i don't despise prog but i've never heard maudlin of the well the other <laughs> the final piece i just wanted to note because i know we are both huge fans of bobby blue bland oh. is another jeffrey himes piece about Bobby Blue Bland and Americana. He makes the point that, you know, the the ancestors of Americana are so often the usual suspects, the Hank Williamses uh-huh. and Woody Guthrie's and so forth. And an African American performer like Bobby Bland is isn't sort of cited in in that uh, in, in in that bracket and, and and should be. And he talks to a bunch of of artists, you know, loosely definable as Americana right. artists who who all worship Bobby Blue Bland or cover Bobby Blue Bland and it's it's just it's just really interesting I do think Bobby Bland was uh, apart from being just one of the greatest singers I think he was a really important figure I, I, in the transition from kind of rhythm and blues into soul music uh, and I think uh, we've uh, talked about this in the past uh, no uh, uh, absolutely I mean first first of all he had a unique voice he, he's one of those voices that, that you just you hear the first word huge you, cavernous you, you know voice. exactly who it is from, yeah. the, from the first word of the song um, this thing about Americana is interesting because actually what's notable about Bobby Bland as a blues artist but particularly in that transitional period you're describing is he had a very uptown sound it is not a lo-fi rootsy you know Americana sort of sound in that respect um, th- this is a guy who used the best musicians he could, mm. had lushly orchestrated albums mm. with sort of, you know, large bands and strings and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and um, so, I mean, I'd yeah. say that Americana isn't the first word which comes to mind when I think of Bob, Bobby Blue Bland. No, I, mean, I, I take your point. Although I would actually say the stuff I love most mm. in, in in the Bobby Bland back catalogue is... is is not the stuff with the big blaring horns. Uh, the, the the slightly smaller productions, well, like Lee Mitchell stuff. did with him in, oh, in right, Memphis, right. just like Two Steps from the Blues, yes, that extraordinary that's, that's album. That's fantastic. Right? I mean, his stuff was a bit, um, you know, the, the, these albums weren't conceived as albums, so they don't necessarily have uniform mm. kind of production or arrangement styles. But um, I... I I don't like him in big band mode. Yeah. I like him when, when you know, I mean, you're, the, the classic track is Stormy Monday Blues. Oh, yeah. And that yeah, is yeah, just, yeah. I mean, but I think he's that, probably my favourite Stormy singer. Monday, I believe, was pretty much one take at the end of a session. Yeah, Clyde yeah. Stubblefield was his drummer was at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, when Clyde met Jabbo Starks uh, at a, in the process of joining James Brown mm-hmm. band, 
Javert Stark said, you know, who do you play? Oh, you're Clyde Stoppelfeld. You played with Bobby Bland. It was like, or, sure. you know. Sure. Um, uh, and then they proceed, there were five drums in the James Brown band at that point. They proceeded to get rid of everyone else. They just drove them out one by one. Well, there you but, go. but Clyde Stoppelfeld, when interviewed, has always talks enormously fondly about working with Bobby Bland. I mean, it was always an interesting musical experience. Um, and yeah, you know, he was at the top of his game at that time. Just, just a great singer. Just a phenomenal singer. I, you know, my push comes to shove. My favourite singer of all yeah. time, I think. And I was lucky enough to meet him once. Uh, lucky enough to see him perform once. He's gone now. Uh, I think he's up there with you know Ray Charles, with Sam Cooke. You know, I, I, and- th- I think that partly due to the efforts of people like yourself over the years, his reputation has got to where it should be. I think that when I first started listening to Bobby Blue Bland, which would have been about in the mid-70s, I guess early mid-70s, um, he had sort of been sort of bypassed. You know, B.B. King, his, who he had worked with, made cut a couple of albums. Of course. Was the great B.B. King. Mm. Um, Ray Charles was Ray Charles. Mm. And Bobby Bland was sort of almost seen as kind of a marginal figure. Mm. And I think he... That's no longer the case. I think there are so many people... Uh, who have just fallen back in love with Including him. Including Mick Hucknall, who we yes. have the highest opinion of, but I have to say I was touched that he made a whole album yeah. called Tribute to Bobby. Yeah. Uh, he was obsessed with Bobby Bland. And, um, you know, so it, it, it's always heartening when somebody gets that kind of, uh, you know, recognition, whether it's posthumous or not. So yeah. so, so that's, that's our lot this week. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Listen in next week. Please, as I say, do, do rate and review on on iTunes or elsewhere and we're going to love you and leave you with some more of Bill Nelson talking this time Mark about yeah uh, well about Roy Thomas Roy Baker, Thomas Baker. Um, very amusingly <laughs> so, this, so this is Bill Nelson talking about working on the Future Armour album um, with Queen producer Roy Thomas uh, Baker and having the curtains in the studio set, set on, on fire. fire yes <laughs> over and out bye bye Take the rough with the smoother token of love, my love. Future Armour, Roy Thomas Baker, mm. was that his choice, EMI's choice, or what? That was EMI's choice at the time. They decided that um, we were going to you know, have Roy Thomas Baker as a producer. Because he was hot at the time. Well, yeah, he, was, he just got Queen in the charts and everything, and it was like, you know, this guy makes hits, so let's have him, you know. And Roy's good. I like the man as a, as a, as a person. But I didn't enjoy working with him, to be honest. Um, he's got a very formulated attitude. He tends to treat... I've spoken to other people that's worked with him. Nazareth is a band that's actually worked with him. And he does have a set way of recording, you know, like the drums are recorded in a certain way and so on. And he's a very kind of... Um, uh, not happy-go-lucky. He's a bit crazy sometimes in the studio, like he sets curtains on fire while you're doing vocals. Really? Yeah, which can be fun if you're in the mood, but if you've been striving to get a vocal part right for a couple of hours, and some guy comes in and really sort of upsets you when you just think you're getting it right, you know, I mean, it really caused a lot of frustration on my part, Mm. and uh, I I never wanted to work with him after that. That was an excerpt from an Ian Ravendale interview with Bill Nelson of Bebop Deluxe, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The presenters were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. For show notes and list of articles discussed, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.